Yeah, that's a great school. So yeah, uh, that that part of Texas and a bunch of my family from that part of Texas too. So I don't know your town, but I know that area well. <laughs> it's home. That's, you know, that's just going back home. I love it. That's where I was born and raised. Very nice. So we are live. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. And yes, I stole that line from Jake Sussman. <laughs> Welcome to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. Um, we have with us today, Maggie Spire. Maggie is an educator who went from elementary education to educating our incarcerated within the prison system. So Maggie, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I, I know you're really good friends with one of our founders and she was really excited about having you on because she felt like the experience that you could talk about with us was so central to everything that we're talking about with dyslexia and the pipeline to prison. And she felt like you could, you know, share some insights with that. And like you and I were discussing before we went live from elementaries to, to prisons, that's a pretty big leap. What, what motivated you to make that leap? Well, I just felt after 17 years of being in elementary school, it was just time for a change. I just felt a calling to do something different. Um, I had received my master's degree in 2010 focused in reading, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, at the time, I thought I wanted to teach college, and I was an adjunct doing that, and then my heart was just wanting to do something different. And I was kind of just looking around, and I never that was never the direction I thought I would go in. Um, and I didn't really know what the ups and downs were of the prison system for education or the ins and outs. And um, I applied and learned a little bit about it. And it was definitely a, the best experience. And I'm so glad I had a chance to do that. Um, so it was just, I was ready to step out and do something different. And um, the public school system is just much different than it was when I started teaching 20 years ago. And I wanted to see another end of education. Wow. Um, who were your typical students? And I mean, what, so first, what state were you in when you were- Missouri. Missouri, okay. Mm -hmm. What um, did you have, was it a random selection of the population? Was it a specific group of people that you worked with? There was a variety of students that I had. I mean, I had from literally 18-year-olds to 70-year-olds in my class. Um, I started out when I first was hired into the state with the diagnostics area. So my job in the beginning was to talk with anybody that had not received their GED or their high school diploma and kind of test them and see where they stood and what I could do to help them obtain that. I had to put them on a path um, to see what we could do to help them. And depending on their level, they may be ready now. You know, they could have been educated up through 10th, 11th grade and something happened and they didn't continue. And so I could pick up pretty easily. And then there were some that something happened and it'd been 20 years, maybe they'd been incarcerated for 20 years and they were back in and um, they felt ready. And so it kind of just depended on the student, but um, it was a select variety. Um, and the area that we're in was mostly uh, Caucasian men. And the majority of my group of students, I would say were between 25 and 35 um, inner city. 
um, men that had been um, in, most of them had been in and out several times. Um, and they always told me their first time in was, I'm not doing, it was more of a, I'm too cool. I'm not doing this. I'm young. I don't need this. And then as they got older, older as in their late twenties, early thirties, they would, they would see the need and the want to do that. And so that was the majority of my population of students that would come in and um, be at a level where they were able to obtain it pretty, pretty quick. After about, oh goodness, um, almost eight months, I saw an opening in the education department to be an actual teacher and have my own classroom. Again, that is not something I ever thought that I'd leap into, and I had no idea really what that entailed. And so I learned a little bit about it. I applied for the job. I got it. I got over there, and this is during COVID. And so um, it's a lot different, the setup of the classroom. But I was able to have um, 10 men at a time in my class, and uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but those are like big bodies. I'm used to little bitty guys, you know? And so um, there were 10 men at a time in my class and I had three sessions. They were two hour long sessions. And I, every single person had an individualized set that they needed. One man may have um, really, really weakness, maybe a fifth grade level in reading, but he was great in math, science, and social studies. And so my job was to get them prepared for the high set test to receive their equivalency. And so every single person had a different individualized plan that I'd have to make for them. And so that was much different than I was used to. So given that example, what were you finding from a literacy perspective regarding their reading ability? It was all over their board. I was, I'm so used to having a grade level in elementary. And even though you may have a pre-primer reader and a fourth grade reader in the same, it's not, it's not the same as having a man who's fluent and is ready to take any kind of comprehension test compared to a man that's still working on phonics. Um, I had so many uh, men in our system that just reading fluency was a struggle. Um, what I did notice Overall, and I could say the majority of my students, um, they struggled in reading a lot, which seemed to be due to um, their vocabulary and their exposure, and not just so much their academic education, but just what they were surrounded by. And um, that was a huge a huge problem in their writing as well. And so we discussed that several times. They would write and I'd say, this is great content. And then I would read it to them and they would hear it and they'd realize that's not correct. And so that was a lot of a struggle that we had to deal with was um, what they, and they just didn't, they had never been exposed. And many of them told me we'd never been exposed to reading and wanting to read and like reading until they were in prison and they really didn't have any other option to do anything. And that's so heartbreaking that they were never um, surrounded by it. So their struggle with reading started from, you know, so far back and um, so many of them, which I'm definitely not a diagnostician, but I could see, I could see so many struggles that lean towards, man, that's a possible dyslexia. Oh goodness. This is a possible, he might've had autism and no one, I mean, all these things. And so I would try to, um, 
talk to them individually and just kind of get to know their background to see where they were led academically, not in their choices. And um, they struggled. So many of them struggled from the beginning and just had no help or no support. Um, people at home didn't support or the school saw them as trouble and didn't seem to want to support them. So I saw a lot of heartbreaking um, stories that just started from the very beginning of education. Wow. So it's, and a lot of what we talk about too, and you brought it up, it's, it's not just their lack of reading ability, but it's their lack of background knowledge too, because they've not huh. been given the proper exposure within their education to those things that they need to know in order to develop the necessary vocabulary as well. Sure. We would pull different passages. I mean, everything that I used to help them obtain their high set was never written any higher than a seventh grade, maybe eighth grade level. And, you know, research shows that most of the things we read in newspapers and all those things are not written higher than that. And um, they struggled. And I taught them in a way that I would teach like a fourth grade classroom. I did a lot of oral reading discussion, pass it back to them, um, have them do it independently, this, you know, discuss it, make notes, write just, and they just never been taught those skills to break down um, how reading can literally help them pull out information. And so uh, that was just a, all those skills that we learned in elementary school, middle school of how to better comprehend something they didn't have. And so I was trying to start back from just fluency and vocabulary um, to get them to that point. And so, yeah, their exposure or lack of exposure definitely played a huge part in um, their inability to get where they needed until they learned those skills. Do you feel like the failure within the education that they experienced as children growing up, you know, into men, did that contribute to the fact that they were incarcerated because you're talking I, about some fairly intelligent people absolutely you know <laughs> yeah you're exactly right and i do i do feel that that is a huge part um when you asked me earlier i went from elementary to prison I would sit there and have my students while we were in my prison classroom and think back to 17 years prior of having students. I taught the majority of my um, 17 years prior of that to third grade. I did um, second grade, I did kindergarten, but the majority, 11 of those 17 were in third grade reading. And so um, that was kind of my go-to how to teach. And it, it worked great, but I would think back to, oh goodness, I hope that I did little Johnny some good because this could be him in 20 years. And it broke my heart and it scared me because I could hear their stories, um, personal stories and academic stories and think back to how little Johnny was in my classroom, you know, 10 years ago. And that was very similar to his life and very similar to his lack of exposure. And I hope that I did just a little bit to make sure he, you know, he did the best that he could. And seeing both ends of that. And I've had children in the past. I've always for 18 years, always taught in low socioeconomic areas and um, always taught in title one schools. And so having them 
a big group of my children be low socioeconomic, they had families at home that were very similar. And I've had several students that had parents that were incarcerated and being on the flip side and hearing dads talk about their kids at home, it was just very eye-opening. And my favorite part to having some conversations with my students in prison was, I don't want my kids to end up like this. I want them to be proud of me. I want to have my GED. I want to go home and help them with homework. And those were like, oh, so eye-opening to me to know that that's where their heart was and they they want to fix the next generation. And, um, but I, yeah, I totally think that that is a huge part of um, where their lack was growing up. Wow. That's, oh, I have chills. <laughs> and it's sad, it's heartbreaking. And, yeah. you know, I've taught hundreds and hundreds of kids. I was always departmentalized when I taught third grade. So I had a hundred kids a year, um, ish. And so I've taught departmentalized. Okay. So when I taught third grade, we, um, which when I was growing up, we did not do this. You had one teacher in elementary that taught you all the subjects, but, um, starting in third grade in the areas that I've taught, there would be four or five teachers. So there would be math, reading, science, social studies. And so I only taught reading. Um, I taught fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension, which um, some parents weren't a big fan of, but their students, in my opinion, as an educator, were so much stronger as a reader because they literally had one hour focused solid every day to those three things. And I think that that helps a lot in not just we're going to do social studies while we read this book. We're going to do science while we read this book. It's literally departmentalized where everybody teaches their subject solid. And um, that helps a lot, but um, it's just heartbreaking whenever I, I hear their stories and I, I wish I could go back and, you know, you can literally see they are like little boys trapped in these huge men bodies um, making these decisions. And this is where they are. And so many of them just wish they could go back, but they don't know how to get out. Um, this may not be a fair question, and I apologize in advance. How, how successful is the GED program? Helping these men get their GEDs, et cetera. How successful is that program? Hmm. It's, it's okay. That's a fair question. I would say, well, let me back up a little bit and say, I worked in the prison system for about 18 months and um, loved every moment of it, went in thinking, you know, I mean, I was 40. It's not like I was 18 and thought I could change the world, but I was 40 and thought I could change the world. And that's why we do teaching, right? We want to go in and we're, we're going to make a difference. And that was my thought going into this is I was going to make a difference. And um, I think I did. I think I did, but I went into education to help. It's like my mission, you know, it's like my mission calling. It just happens to be in education and not in ministry. And so when I went into this field, that's what I did. And I thought I was going to do that in prison. And when I got into prison and started doing what I feel my strengths are, and I was, I mean, I had, I can't even tell you, um, 30, 40 guys passed the GED in just a few months and the times that I had them very successful, but somehow, um, 
later I was told that teaching them needed to stop. Um, that was not how we did it in prison. We handed them workbooks and gave them worksheets to do. And um, I didn't buck the system, but I was thinking, no, I'm a teacher. Like I don't, <laughs> that's what I do. And so all those months I had been doing everything I had, my degrees had taught me and my heart was leaning me to, to know, you know, your students and what they're capable of, even when they don't think so. Um, that had to stop. And that's when I left. Um, because a workbook's not going to do it. It didn't do it 20 years ago for them. It didn't do it, you know. And so um, if done as an education program, it is so, so good for them. Um, but like any other setting of education, they have to know you care before they do, yeah. you know. And I showed that because that's just, I mean, I was you know, did elementary for so long. And I think every person deserves to um, have a say in what they learn and do and how they do it and what they're strong at and what they want to do. And whenever I gave my students a voice, that became a problem. And, and so that was heartbreaking to me because in my head, I wanted to make a difference. And so when I started making a difference, they bloomed, they blossomed. And I have all these letters and notes that my students wrote to me and would say stuff like, um, you know, people will gripe to come to education because there's some guys that are like, this is a waste of my time. I'm not doing this. I, I do auto body when I get out of here, my job's still waiting for me. They didn't see the need. And I, I understand that. Then there were some guys that would come to class and they would drag their feet. And then later they'd write a note and say, I appreciate after they get their GED, I appreciate you. I would have never done this. Did I ever think I'd be able to do this? But you made me realize that I can and you pushed me. And so that's why I showed up every day. That's what I did it for. And then whenever I felt that I was being told that wasn't what I needed to do, it was it was time to walk away. And I was heartbroken. I bawled my eyes out to leave prison because I felt that I was making one of the hugest impacts I could in my career there. And that's just not quite what um, that education system is doing. And um, not that they're being hindered, but they're being stalled, if that makes sense. Well, and when they've always been stalled, you're just continuing the stall. Was that, was that just the prison, was that the statewide education? Was that, where was that direction coming from? I felt like it was coming statewide. Okay. Um, it just trickled down to how I was told from my higher beings. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel that it was statewide. Of course, I've only worked in one facility for prison. And so I can't speak directly for all, all facilities. I think we have 28 in our state. But um, I felt like that was kind of the way that it was made from the top down. And um, just talking to my students, I mean, we would start our two hour classes every day, fit session, kind of like, hey, what's going on? How's everybody doing? In my head, if my students get everything, it doesn't matter if they're five or if they're 40 or 80, if they get whatever's on their mind and on their shoulders out, then I have a clear head to teach. And so I do that 
with first graders. Hey, how's it going? Anything going on? And, you know, they'll tell you anything, like things you probably should not know. And um, it's the same way with men in prison. They'll tell you all about it. And we would have a 10, 15 minute vent session and then they were good to go. And they were treated like people. And um, because they are, <laughs> because they are men and they struggle. And once we, we got that out, we were able to learn and they craved it. I mean, they would buck me for a little bit and I would let them just sit there and be quiet, not speak or whatever the case may be. But when they saw their peers obtaining the information or reading, I would start reading orally. And then I'd always say, I'm not going to make anybody read aloud, but you know, you're really good at it. I would love for somebody to volunteer. We would definitely have some volunteers. And then once some people were hearing their peers volunteer, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, he did that. I I can do that. And so they would start trying to trump each other. And it was like a competition and, um, but my classroom was a safe place in prison. You know, there may be different ways on their wings and in their housing units and on the yard, how they act. But in my classroom, it was, it was a safe place. And so um, they were not afraid to learn. They wanted to, and they asked for it. It was, it was wonderful. Well, so what, what I do for a living is, is our, our negotiations and what you just described from being able to create a safe space for people that's that's so tantamount to being able to ultimately achieve anything. Exactly. Um, you know, of take a negotiation for a specific example. If if I want to keep the person on their toes, I'm going to keep the anxiety levels high. You know, I I want to I, I want to keep them in a defensive posture. I want to. I want them to stay scared. I want them to always be questioning where am I going to go next versus if I've got something I really need to get to the heart to, I need that person to drop their defenses and to trust me. And the only way to get somebody to trust you is to allow them to be vulnerable, but to be vulnerable with them as well. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. And our children especially need that vulnerability because they're such vulnerable creatures. They don't know how to be defensive yet. They don't know, they, they don't know any of that yet. They're just these little vulnerable hearts, like walking around in the world and fully exposed and raw and pure emotional beings. And when you damage that child and then they're incarcerated later, that's, you know, then you're adding trauma to the situation. So, I mean, what, what you were creating in your classroom would be so critical in order to have success, which clearly you did. It's, it's extremely tragic that they would stop you from being able to, I mean, you were having success. They ultimately looked at you and said, we don't care that you're being successful. This isn't how we're going to do it. Right. And I felt like it was one of those things. And I, my is why, why, why would we not do this? This is teaching. Um, don't we want them to be successful was my, my thought. And, um, I felt like it was just, this is the way it is. And you know, that's it. And you, you said it exactly. I feel like, um, you know, when you're young, like you said, you're so vulnerable and there have been so many layers of multiple walls put up over these men, um, by their own choice or by others around them that they have no, you know, no say over getting through those walls was the hugest success in itself. Um, then we could get the learning done. And so 
I made myself, like you said, very vulnerable. I had them know a little bit about my background and know that, yeah, I mean, people in here are going to judge you. And they're like, you know, they would always say things about how um, people would say negative stuff to them. And I would remind them a lot of people that work in here have done some of the same things that you have done. They just haven't been caught doing them. Um, They are not any better than you are. They've just made different choices along the way. And once they realized that I was sincere about those things, then their walls started to come down just a little bit. But what made my heart break, and they had to do it, is once my classroom door would open wide at the end of the two hours, those walls would just come back up. I mean, they had to. They're in survival mode. And so, um, yeah, definitely, it's just, it's like, this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's going to be. Um, I was not to, I remember an actual um, conversation I had with um, a colleague and the comment that came out of my colleague's mouth was, there sure is a lot of laughter going on in your room. And my thought was, yeah, I mean, <laughs> why wouldn't there be? Um, and I was, I said, yeah. And the colleague said, well, that sounds like you're having too much fun and you need to be giving them work to do. And I was so taken aback by that, that I didn't really have anything to say, which if you know me well, is so rare <laughs> that I wouldn't have anything to say, but I had to go back and kind of let that sink in. And I thought that's so sad to me that this person, hopefully not this whole department, um, but this person feels like those two things can't happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. And to me, and not just because I taught education, but to me as a person, those two should happen at the same time. That's how they sink in. That's how you remember. That's how you have an emotion attached to your academics so that you can be successful. And I think that's a huge part of why my students were, they had a good time. And um, I would make mistakes and I, you know, we would laugh at it. We would go on. And again, in the end, it made them realize that their mistakes in my class were just another part of it's, it's what I do. I, I have two degrees. I'm up here teaching in front of you. And I still do those things too. Totally cool. We're going to just get through it. And we would laugh and joke, but again, they'd open that door and those walls would come up and they'd go in survival mode. Um, So yeah, definitely a safe place. I had students that were, I remember one day, it was a very interesting, you know, you have to remember you have different ethnicities, different races, different backgrounds. And um, I passed out, we were always writing the state of Missouri has you write an opinion piece to receive your high set. You have to receive a certain score. So I'm teaching them um, the order in which we write things and how we write a hook. I mean, like from scratch, you know, step one. And so we were talking about it. We always pass out the two opinion pieces and discuss them. I would always read them. I'd have them reread them and then we would discuss them or they felt comfortable enough. They could talk to them in partners. That was always an option and you have to be careful and, you know, the prison system to do that. But um, anyway, we were passing these out and we got halfway through one side and one guy was like, I mean, like looked terrified. And I said, yeah. And he said, "Um, can we get a different topic? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, If you don't mind telling me why you feel that way. And he said, this is about to cause a lot of problems. And I said, okay, absolutely. So I took them all up. And later after class, I was like, hey, um, 
so glad, first of all, that you spoke up. Um, and I totally understand when, when you leave here, you guys aren't classmates anymore. You know, you are, you're this wing and this wing and you stand for whatever I said, but what was it about that piece that, um, that worried you? And he said, I just knew that there were going to be so many strong emotions on each of these that we needed to nip it before it became an issue on the yard. And so for me, and that doesn't sound like a very big deal, but for me, that was huge. He felt comfortable enough to me to go ahead and say, we're not going to do this. I'm totally not okay with this. And I, I talked to everybody afterwards and they were like, yeah, best choice that we could have made. We didn't, we don't need that. And so um, I just don't know if they were in another classroom where they didn't have that openness, if that would have been, you know, discussed or if they would have just done it or just refused to do it. And that's what happened in other classrooms. They would just refuse to do the work. And so um, we kind of just became a close-knit little group. Every single class had their own own feel, their own personality, personality like any other class. So I, um, I enjoyed being able to work with them like that. Well, um, but I want to go back to what you said, because I think that that is such a core misunderstood thing is, you know, going back to the vulnerability piece and being criticized sure. for having too much laughter what you said was spot on. It's when you're, when you feel safe and you can attach emotion to what you're learning, it's, you're more open to being able to take in more information, to challenge, to ask questions, to have ideas, to, that is, that's essential for the brain. And I think a lot of people don't, don't remember or don't understand anymore how we are emotional creatures and emotion is absolutely tied to everything that we do. Mm -hmm. You know, as an example, when, when I'm in a negotiation, <laughs> people have told me that I'm so, I'm so shut down emotionally that sometimes I scare people because it's just like, there's, there's no emotion coming out of me at all. And what I tell those people is I'm like, there's an enormous amount of emotion going on in me inside my head that I've warred with myself for a few days going into that emotion in order to compartmentalize it. I said, but that right. dialogue's still going on in my head, but it's like I've stuck a little like soldier in front of all of that emotion going. You can't <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, but it, that, that's a, that's a choice that I've made and it doesn't mean that I'm not taking in any of the information. It's simply that I'm exuding a specific character trait, if you will. Yes. But it's, and I do that intentionally in order to control the emotions and the dialogue. And it's a very statistical or not statistical, strategic same S words, very close. It's a very strategic thing that I'm doing when I do that. Right. Um, we don't, you know, our children are such emotional creatures again, because they're pure emotion that they need to have that emotional attachment. If they're not having that emotional attachment, then something that needs to be a red flag for people that something's going on, that child's shutting down. Why is that child shutting down is, you know, are they not learning? Have they not been learning? You know, is, is there fear? Is there anxiety? Is there, what's going on with the child if they're not exuding that emotion? And people really need to understand that. Absolutely. And there needs to be some kind of, like you said, a red flag, but 
if we don't know how to talk to the children or students of any age and open that up so that they are willing to give, there's just, there's always going to be that block and it's going to interrupt everything, everything academically, everything friendship wise, communication wise. And I think that's what's happened so much with so many of our incarcerated that it just keeps going. And um, some of them have said to me, you know, I'm like, what's, what is the block? What are you, you're so smart. Like, I hear you, you sound, you know, you can have a full conversation with correct grammar. You look me in the eye when you speak to me. I know that's not how you were raised. You've told me how you were raised. What's the block? You know, and they would have to get to a point where finally they would open up a little and say stuff like, I always, always struggled with reading. No one, no one helped me. I would be called stupid. I'd go home and they would tell me I was stupid and there was no hope. I wouldn't end up, you know, and so then there goes another layer of uh, blocking things out and not being able to open up. And um, the majority of them finally would crack for me, but there would always be those ones that wouldn't. And the younger they were, of course, the easier they would be able to, to do that for me. Not always, but the majority of the time. And um, the core group of people, like I mentioned earlier, that wanted to do well and could get past the fact that they hadn't in the past um, and were willing to let me help them were those guys who had been in and out and just had enough and they wanted more. They finally wanted more. Um, and they usually had children, uh, usually young children where they would start to say, like I mentioned earlier, they don't want this for their kids. They don't want their kids to feel um, not um, up to what they could be. They don't want them to ever feel dumb. That was the word they used all the time. Um, and so that's kind of whenever they would start realizing I can and I will, and I'm going to prove to my kids that I can because I don't want them to do this. And um, that made me happy as an educator and as a mama, just because that, that's no one wants their kids to go through that. And for some reason, um, a lot of their parents didn't or weren't there maybe for being incarcerated. I heard a lot of stories. Um, the majority of my students were in for drug-related charges. I would say the majority. Um, I was in a, a low-level security prison, um, and so most of them were there for, for drug charges. And um, some of them were one of those, oh, that was just a bad deal. Um, but the majority were, this is definitely generational. Um, and the generational was not just incarceration, it was also academic issues and no diploma and no, and it just went so far back that it never, for them not to struggle was unfathomable. Like, why wouldn't I? My mom and dad did and my brothers and sisters did and, um, and then no one at home helped them and I don't know. I grew up in a small town, so I kind of know how it is. And um, you kind of get this uh, label of, well, all your brothers and sisters struggled, so I'm sure you'll struggle too and um, get pushed off to the side. So when they did struggle and there could have been a huge learning disability, they were so brushed off. Um, and these poor babies were probably the troublemakers and uh, were brushed off for that. And they just never got the help or the label to know they needed help. 
that um, they had. Like I said, they were either from tiny, tiny, small towns and had a label with their last name or huge inner cities. Um, and they were just a number, you know, just a, a dollar sign on a on a district. And um, it's just it's heartbreaking. But yeah, breaking down that wall is huge. And um, I had very few men, probably over 50, that would ever break their wall down. And it just broke my heart because I wanted them to see they could and um, help. And just so many of them had given up, just given up on education and the fact that that was not going to happen for them. Um, And so that I felt like I failed them so many times and I had to remove myself emotionally from that, because I, I know that I, there's so much that you can do and, and try to get yourself in and, and know that you're going to do the, all you can, but some of them just, they're not ready. And I hope one day they will be, but some of them just weren't ready for me. Yeah. Um, having gone to a school that my sister went to and having had the same teachers, I can definitely appreciate, oh, you're her sister. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Who are who? I don't know that person. <laughs> happen to have the same last name. I'm not her sister. What are you talking about? <laughs> but you know, that's a good thing and a bad thing, depending on who your older siblings are, but definitely yeah. in these small towns, it's like the whole family and it's just, it and makes just me so mad. My sister ever watches this. I do love you. <laughs> that was like an offset, but it did happen. <laughs> Oh goodness. Um, but you, you hit on something key, which is the generationality of, of, of this. And, you know, honestly, because we're not teaching our children to read in our classrooms today across the country, we're fostering that generational illiteracy and pipeline to prison. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They, for some reason, I think culturally we tend to see prisoners as as one-offs within society. You know, something yeah. about their personality, et cetera. Nobody's looking at the history of you know what's necessary, or it's oh, we're, they're just poor. The father wasn't present. You know, of course they ended up here. Well, okay, why were they poor, and why wasn't the father present? And you know what what was fueling that? What was going into that? We're not asking those questions. You're exactly right. We're not getting down to the root. We're brushing it off as um, this is the way it is. It's the way it's always been. The family's always been this way or whatever the case may be and not how can we go back and and help that. So from here on out, it doesn't continue with that family or with this you know group of people. And um, it is a gener- generational thing with so many families. Um, you said something earlier. I don't remember what it was, but so I have to get to them somehow, or I just, I lose them. And so, you know, they'd come in my office when I taught diagnostics and I'd be like, okay, you, we're going to test you. You know, I was, they would look at me like I was crazy. Cause I am, you know, a born elementary teacher. So you can do this. I'm so excited. We're going to get you your GED. <laughs> and they'd be like, uh, I'm good. I don't need that. And so <laughs> once they got to know me, they just realized that that's just how I was. And I wasn't, you know, but, um, you're just a lot of times, <laughs> yeah. A lot of times, I'd have to get to them, and so I would just kind of stop my spiel of why they needed this. And a lot of times, and what I got to most of them, I'd say, you know, is your is your mom still around? Is she is your mom still living? And 
And then they'd light up. It was their mama. And yeah, my mom's still alive. She, blah, blah, blah. what does she do? Where is she? What does she, um, do you get to talk to her? You communicate, you know, we'd have this conversation five, 10 minutes and I'd say, okay, so let's go back to that GED thing. So whenever you complete that and I help you do that and I put you in a gown and cap and I take your picture, you don't think mama's going to want that? Yeah, mama would like that. You know, and it, and then they'd start working and they'd start lagging off a little bit. And I'd say, man, it's going to take a mom a lot longer to put that picture on the fridge. And like, you're right, sir. You're right. You're right. Okay, here we go. And it was always a, a mama thing. But, you know, and I've learned with so many low socioeconomic classes that that's one of those things that um, a lot of people in low socioeconomic areas, that's the one thing that you can they're attached to, they're attached to their mama, men and women. We, you know, we're that way. I was raised low socioeconomic, a single parent family, just like a lot of these guys. And, um, I would say, you know, my mom's not here anymore, but if she was, you know, and I'd continue and, and they would go, yeah, yeah. I I don't want my mom to be gone. I want her to, I want to do this for her before she's gone. I want to make her proud. And so you kind of just learned that. And it wasn't like just my hook to get them. And I just want them to know that there is somebody that's still out there rooting for them. And they knew I was rooting for them on the inside. And uh, there were people on the outside rooting for them. And I had to always find out who that was and remind them along the way that so-and-so is still out there waiting for this. And they are going to be so proud of you. And I would go in their housing units every once in a while. Like if they didn't show up for class a couple of times, I'd start to worry. Um, I have to write them up or whatever the case may be, but I would always go talk to them before I wrote them up to say, Hey, are you, my, my big thing is, are you emotionally? Okay. Is anything going on? And that always, you don't have to tell me details. I just, you know, and some of them would say, no, so-and-so is going on on the outside. I can't think, you know, and what people don't really remember is they have, I hear a lot of times, well, they're in prison. They don't have anything to worry about. Oh, only everything that's happening on the outside that they can't help do. And so a lot of times, you know, I just go check and make sure. And that would always be a lot of their, their thing would be, their families at home and um, how they could help them. And so once they would open up about that, we would, you know, open that conversation, let the wall down and we go back and do class again, but it was usually their mama. And um, once we made that connection and I would remind them, it was, they wanted to work hard for her. And there were very few, um, thank goodness that didn't have their mom around anymore. And so we would talk about, you know, who else is sister, brother, dad, and, um, but their family's all they have. And so um, thank goodness I didn't come across anybody that didn't have anybody on the outside waiting for them. And I know that there are so many that uh, don't have anybody rooting for them. But whenever I'd find them, you know, they would, I called mom today and I told her I passed this test and she is so excited. And um, like I said earlier, it's just like a kid in in a grown man's body. They want to make you proud of them. They want to do good. You just got to get to that part where they want it. And that's the key with so much of what I did with them. Yeah. Treating them as human beings. Yes. Something that's been thrown away. Yes. And that's what I would always tell them, you know, they would, um, 
we would we were taught in the academy to call them offenders offender jones offender smith offender that was their name in prison um i did not do that i called them just by their last name i never called them offender um in the beginning i did because that's what i was taught in academy that's what you do in my very first group of students i said where's offender so and so and one guy kind of he was like stop saying that like, dude, what? Calm down. He was like, we don't like that. And I was like, okay, tell me more, you know? And so um, they all kind of, kind of put in their, you know, their two cents about it. And I said, deal. You'll never hear that word from me again. That's not a problem. Um, I said, what I do need you to know is to everybody out there, maybe you are offender so-and-so. To me, you're a man, then my student, then you're an offender. I need you to remember that you're a human and you're a man and you're in here and you're my student above all else things. You know, when you're sitting in front of me and I'm teaching you and I'm sitting next to you and we're working on algebra, I'm not sitting there thinking what your charge is. I don't care. You are my student and you need my help. And we're going to do this as a team. We're, we're working this as a team. We are like a family in these four walls. And I don't care what your label is on the outside. And so once they realized that I, I felt that way, I voiced it and was sincere, those walls did drop. And, and like you said, and I've, like I said, I had notes from some earlier and they would say stuff like, we're just black cattle running through here. No one cares. We're not treated like people. And um, once I soaked that in and didn't just fall from the fact that they said that, you know, when you hear for a couple of people say, you're like, okay, look, what did you do? But after groups and groups of them, I thought, no, they really are. And so then I would walk on the yard and see and hear, and I, I got what they were saying. Um, I tried harder to make sure they remembered that they were, they were men and fathers and brothers and sons and um, students. And that was above their label of being a felon. And um that was really important to them to be treated like humans. Like they, like they almost forgot they were. And that breaks my heart. So I, I, I have to ask this one question just because, sure. you know, I think a lot of people think about doing various work with the prison population, et cetera. But the first thing that's going to pop into people's head is the fear of doing that. So you went from teaching elementary to working in a prison were you ever afraid? Did you ever feel unsafe? Did you, you know, what, you know, we've all worked in professional environments. And so is that environment different? Is it, yes, you were shut down, but I'm just talking about the overall sort of scope of things, if if you know what I mean. So let's talk about the fear for a minute. Okay. Um, (laughs) well, I, um, I didn't feel any fear. The only time, honestly, I would look up what any of my students had done um, is when I worked in diagnostics, I had an office and we all had small offices in this huge area. And yes, there was no like ceiling. So it was like cubicles with walls is what it was. But um, if I was going to be alone in a classroom with someone for a period of time, I would look up just to kind of give a heads up to anybody around me if it was something that I needed to be uh, concerned about. But other than that, I didn't feel fear. I remember kind of being nervous the first time I walked out of my building and walked out into the prison yard. And um, 
it wasn't so much fear. It was, I knew all eyes were on me and, um, and I'm about as outgoing as you can get, but it was just strange because you look and there's buildings everywhere and they're tall and you see men staring out those windows. <laughs> you know, my thought was, oh my gosh, that fear was never something I felt. And what I did learn pretty quick and was probably one of the coolest things was once I started teaching my classes in the education department. And I had these groups, like I said, up to 10 men in a classroom, three classes a day, they were very protective. And I don't mean um, weird, creepy. I mean, like cousins, brothers, they did not like me going into a housing unit without one of them near me. Um, I remember one time saying, man, I got to cross the yard and they were having wreck time. So there would be hundreds of men out on the yard and um, which did not scare me at all. Didn't, I did not care. I just go out there, but they didn't like that. And so they would be like, Hey, can you wait to go to the yard when class is over? Cause we'll, we'll escort you over there. And yeah, I got cat called. I got all the other things like you would expect in a prison. I can brush that off. That does not bother me whatever you get that walking down the highway sometimes, you know, walking, crossing the street sometimes or driving down the highway in a busy area, whatever. But as far as fear, fear, I never felt that. And once I had those students, they would, they really would. And it was such a totally different feeling to have them walk with you because they knew people would be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We're not going to say anything to her. I mean, everything, no cat calling, no looking, no anything when my students were with me. Um, and they were very protective. I'd even have, I went to a, a housing unit one day to ask a, a man, you know, you haven't come in three days. Are you okay? And, um, he started kind of mouthing, which I brush off, whatever. I was still not fearful of him by any means. And he was like, I don't have to tell you where I am. Well, I guess I'm pretty loud. And so another person down the hallway in his housing unit wing heard my voice and he stepped out. He's like, bro, do not raise your voice at her. That is my teacher and you will be respectful. And I, and I was like, <laughs> and so, you know, it's just like having my core people. They were always on the lookout for me. Um, I even had a man who was not a student of mine that had been in prison for years and years and years. And he was an older man, probably in his early seventies. And he kind of just, um, I would tutor my students. I'd go out of my way in between classes and I would go to a housing unit, had a gym. And so if we were this close from getting, you know, their high set or their GED, I would go in there and tutor them. He always said outside the gym, just that was his chill time. Instead of going outside for rec, he'd sit and chill. Um, and so he saw me in there working with them really hard all the time. And one day a guy had given me a hard time in my classroom and I had removed him and told him he was no longer welcome until he could get his attitude straight. And, um, things get, I mean, passed around in prison real fast. So I went later that afternoon to go tutor and that older man stopped me and he said, so-and-so was talking about you earlier. And I was like, oh. It's fine, whatever. He was like, no, it is not fine. You are a good person and I will not allow anyone to talk to you about you that way. And so it's just like you said, it kind of becomes family. I don't know another way to say that. When you respect them, they will respect you to the end of time and um, they will take up for you. And so 
I felt just the opposite of fearful on that yard because I had people watching out for me. And um, as silly as it is, I feel like if I were to ever run into any of them in public, I think I'd get a huge hug. And I think I would get a, you know, you know, just watching out, don't touch her, don't mess with her. Um, I just felt like I had a lot of, of people watching out for me because I watched out for them in different ways. So fearful was definitely not something I was. Um, but yeah, a lot of my students asked me, which I thought was interesting. Your husband doesn't mind you working in a men's prison? No, why would he? Well, I mean, you know, we're a men's prison. People say stuff. And I was like, well, he knows I can hold my own and he knows why I'm here. And, um, but that was always a question too. Doesn't that bother him? No. Um, but my husband knows me well enough to know that I, I do what I do because I love it. And I made a difference and that's why I showed up every day. But yeah, fearful was so far from what I was with them. Um, honestly, I'm like, you're, you've blown me away for an hour. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now I know why Shantae loves you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, this has been, this has been amazing. Um, this has been such an insightful conversation that we need to be having so much more often. Absolutely. Um, but I just, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to get on this zoom with me and have this conversation and i'm just i i'm almost speechless and i'm almost never speechless but i'm just i'm so blown away by everything that you said so i just i can't thank you enough thank you for having me i really appreciate it. i love um first of all just voicing what it's like to be in a prison some people don't even know that that education in a prison is a thing. Yeah. You know, they never really thought about it. And um, the fact that it is a thing and it's more needed than anybody could ever, ever know. Um, and so many different kinds of education besides receiving that piece of paper is so needed for those men and ladies that are out there. Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully this conversation goes to changing some things because they shouldn't just be doing workbooks. They should be having dedicated teachers who are committed to helping them achieve the education that they didn't get. Absolutely. I guess the only way they'll ever succeed is, is to know that, you know, that, that communication and the caring. And like I said earlier, they're not going to care until we do. And it's just like with any other student. Right. Thanks for having me, Ashley. I've loved it so much. Thank you. I just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to probably watch this all weekend long. I'm going to drive my family crazy. I, I, I want to soak this up even more. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Everybody. I hope you enjoyed this because I know I did. Take care. <laughs>